All right, let's go back in time. February 1976. Sylvester was almost 30. He'd lost his record deal, and he was back to singing blues and jazz tunes at a club called The City. They had a small stage downstairs, so I guess you could say this was an underground scene. Sylvester couldn't even afford a band. Somehow he conjured a piano player and was doing Billie Holiday and Betsy Smith songs. And, um, you know, everybody was shocked. Elsie Love was a young fan. Actually, too young to get into most clubs with her obviously fake ID. But they led her into the city, and that's where she met Sylvester. She was still in awe. It was like Sylvester. Sylvester was opening for, like, David Bowie and all these rock groups. Sylvester was big on the rock circus playing in Winterland. I was there to see the gloom of being dropped from a record label, the struggling in a club, you know, and trying to put a band together, trying to piece his dreams back together. Sylvester is gone splat on the sidewalk as to what his life is going to be. Filmmaker, professor, and Sylvester expert, Stephen Winter. The hot band is over. No label wants to touch him. He's got a reputation now as a diva, which he really never was before, but now all of a sudden he is, and he knows that. And that's getting in his head as he sort of shudders from here to here in San Francisco trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Queens at the bar saying, is the doll washed up? You know how queens are. Sylvester knew that if he was going to make it, something needed to change. His friend, artist Gilbert Baker. I think he realized that he was not going to be able to connect to the rock audience, that Bill Graham was not going to put him on stage with the Rolling Stones on a tour, and that he was going to be stuck, you know. I've been trying to put myself in Sylvester's high heels and imagine what this pivotal moment must have meant for him. With the hot band, he tried to climb to the top of the rock world. (laughs) Well, not just rock, but the glam rock world, a world dominated by Elton John and David Bowie and others. And he banged his head hard on a glass ceiling. It wasn't just him. So many of the 70s black rock artists who embraced glam, like LaBelle and Betty Davis, struggled to make it commercially in a genre that was never made for them. But Sylvester was resilient. He was a fabulist. He had more dreams to spare. This is Sound Barrier, a show about artists who break new ground in music and culture. I'm Jason King, journalist, musician, NYU professor, and chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. This season, it's the gender-bending genius of 70s and 80s popular music, Sylvester. This is episode three, Castro Famous. Just a few years before, Sylvester had made a couple of eclectic, really bold, and really ambitious rock albums with a hot band. But those records were commercial flops. The guys in Sylvester's hot band were unhappy. His label Blue Thumb was losing patience. Nothing seemed to be working. So Sylvester did what anyone would do in that situation. He hopped a flight to Paris. His plan was to wander the boulevards, walk by the Seine, soaking up inspiration. Eh, didn't quite work out. Instead, he was catcalled on the street and kicked out of bars. When Sylvester got back to San Francisco, he learned that his hot band had quit and he'd been dropped by Blue Thumb. So, Sylvester was playing downstairs at the city, flanked by a couple of drag queens, 
singing Aretha covers and a gospel version of the Carpenter's song, Close to You. He starts trying to put together a new band and finds a talented young guitar player named James Wirick. Okay, fair warning. This next audio is pretty rough. It was recorded by author Josh Gamson for his definitive biography of Sylvester. But I like hearing James tell the story about how he reacted to seeing Sylvester that first time. Uh, this guy that I had played with for a long time, he's like, we need a guitar player, come down and have a listen. I was like a 19-year-old straight boy who had not really seen a lot of this. Anyway, I watched the show and I was just so flabbergasted. But I go, wow, he sings really well and he's a great performer and I needed a job. James needed a job and Sylvester needed a new manager. His current manager was a friend who owned an Art Deco furniture store and was just helping out. Brent Thompson had actual contacts in the music business. I had a lot of music connections in Los Angeles with people like Crosby, Stills and Nash. I knew the way the industry worked and I knew what we should be looking for. Brent was recently divorced, had just come out as a lesbian and had moved to the Castro, that neighborhood that was quickly becoming a gay mecca. She had just seen Sylvester do a show in L.A. at the Whiskey. So he was wild. He was fun. He was gorgeous. He sang his heart out. But he had this band that two of them were heroin addicts. And so the music was falling apart behind him. He kept, you know, trying to cover for it, turn around, look at them, like, what is going on? And then one of the guitarists just completely passed out on the stage. And the drummer crawled across the stage and unplugged all the amps. Nothing good was going to happen with this band. Brent became Sylvester's new manager. She was pretty sure that if this was going to work, Sylvester might have to play it straight. You know, there were not a lot of recording contracts that were being given out to drag queens, no matter what race they were. And he really wanted his shot. So we thought, well, maybe we take you out of drag and put you into more of a suit. But he insisted on keeping his full makeup. I had went to go see Billy Preston. Sylvester came out on stage as the opening act. And I said, who the hell is this? I had never seen anything like him before in my life. He just tore the stage up. You know, the crowd went nuts. A couple of years later, I'm in front of him auditioning to be a background singer. Martha Wash is 19 years old. She's black, beautiful, and full-figured. And her voice, her gospel soprano, is astonishing, almost supernatural in tone and range. I received a phone call from a friend of mine who I had done some work with, and she told me that this guy was having auditions for background singers. And I said, okay. And it was close by where I was working at the time. So when I got off, I went over to this house, and in the basement of the house was <laughs> Sylvester. With his hot band, Sylvester had surrounded himself with white, straight male musicians. This time around, though, Sylvester has a very specific concept. He wants two plus-size black women with powerhouse vocals singing on either side of him. Think Tony Orlando and Dawn, but with gospel heat, turned all the way up to the max. I came in and he asked me to just sing for him, you know, and I did and I can't even remember what I sang. But after I finished, he said, do you know anybody else that's as large as you are and that can sing? And I said, yes. And I called Izora. Izora Rhodes was a bit older than Martha and Sylvester, and she had seven kids at home. In her church choir, they called her Queen Mother. 
I had met Isora singing in different gospel choirs. Funny enough, her church and my church were right next door to each other. So during the summertime, when the windows were up, we could literally hear each other's services going on at the same time. So that's how I knew Isora. Martha's a high soprano with buttery, pristine tones. Isora sings in a deeper range and has a barrel house blues sound. Their voices shouldn't blend so beautifully together, but they just do. Here's Isora from another of those slightly rough tapes from author Josh Gamson. Martha called me and I went down and he looked at me and said, come on. And we got in his orange Volkswagen. At that time, I was real big. And I took up the whole seat of the Volkswagen in the back. He and Sylvester sat in the front. We were singing to songs that were being played on the radio. And we were harmonizing to the songs and things like that. That was basically the first rehearsal. And that's how we um, proceeded on. From here on, Martha and Isora are known as two tons of fun. (laughs) Today, you would likely get dragged on social media for a name like that. Martha and Isora were big, sure. But their voices were colossal. Their harmony is like the answer to a question Sylvester never knew that he had. But it feels right. And it feels like home. Stephen Winter. After all those years of the scraggly white boys in the Cockettes and the hot bands, etc., what it must have been like to have two sisters with him all of a sudden. Martha and Isora, they all came from the same place as Sylvester did. They all knew the same hymns. They all shared the same spirit of what it means to be an African-American who grows up in the church. And they were bountiful and beautiful, and they made him more beautiful. It was now the three of them against the world. Sylvester's manager, Brent Thompson. The first time they sat down and sang with the band, it was like the heavens opened up. Brent was able to start getting Sylvester and the Two Tons of Fun some gigs up and down the West Coast. Sylvester may have been more buttoned up and boxed in, but the music, this blend of church harmonies and R&B grooves played by a rock band, was coming together. His sets mixed bluesy songs by James Taylor and Leon Russell with dance tunes like Love Hangover, a recent number one top 40 hit for Diana Ross. Love Hangover is one of my favorite songs of that era, and I can totally see why Sylvester wanted to cover it. It's a song with two irresistible parts. It starts off as sexy, slow-burn R&B, and then it launches into a Philly soul, up-tempo van. Sylvester. Where just the three of us singing and the way that music was arranged, it was different, so certain songs became synonymous with us. They became our songs, and they were no longer the songs of the people who wrote them and audiences ate them up. Because the music was working so well, Sylvester didn't really have to try as hard to sell anything other than just himself. He felt more confident. He was figuring out how to be his authentic self in real time, in front of an audience, finding his way back to the fabulous Sylvester, one feather boa at a time. So Brent never knew exactly what to expect. Background singer Isora Rhodes. Sylvester kept her in stress mode. She never knew what he was going to wear. And then when they say, ladies and gentlemen, Sylvester. And when that spotlight went on Sylvester, he might be in full female regalia, and she would be holding her breath. Because she never knew what Sylvester would do. 
Martha Wash. And she kind of finally gave up trying to tell him what to wear and what not to wear. We would just laugh because he was just going to do whatever he wanted to do, you know, and we just, we dealt with it. When I'm on stage and I go to do a show, I'm there to entertain people. And I do believe seriously, and that's been the basis of my whole concept as far as my act is concerned, is that I do not want someone looking like me in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt or whatever. I'm just not into that. Sylvester and the Two Tons started playing all over town. Eventually, they landed a regular gig in the Castro. So we were working in San Francisco. See, we worked everywhere in this city. There is to work and across the bay, too. But uh, we were working at a little place on Castro Street called the Elephant Walk. The Elephant Walk was a small place in the heart of the neighborhood. And I mean a small place. God, that was a tiny club. Oh, my Lord. Background singer Martha Wash. I think you could get maybe 200 people in there. It would be so hot. My God. It would be so hot in there because everybody was crowding in there trying to see the show. And that was half the fun, too, because they would be making noise outside. They knew they couldn't get in because the place was already packed. But it would be kind of like a street party outside because of, you know, people listening to the, to the show and, and dancing and singing and that whole kind of thing. Every once in a while, there is a place in a neighborhood that becomes the focal point of what that neighborhood stands for. Stephen Winter. And the Elephant Walk's combination of live music, social scene, sexy sex going on, and a really raucous good time helped set the tone for a lot of what was going on in the Castro. It was a political place at the same time because folks were getting together and sharing ideas and body fluids. And they were hearing Sylvester, Martha, and Isora tear the place up in a legendary way. Brent Thompson. Oh my God. So Castro Street in the 70s was an unbelievable moment in time. It was freedom. It was sexual freedom. It was gorgeous people. The bars were packed all day, all night. They would close at 5 a.m. and open again at 7. The Castro is still one of my favorite neighborhoods to visit. It's alive, it's fun and bustling, and it also feels intimate and close-knit. And at night, the scene can get really wild. For decades, it's been an oasis of freedom for queer people who've historically been marginalized and persecuted. But as wonderful as the Castro was in the late 70s, the gay scene had become conformist and homogenous. And by that, I mean more than a little exclusionary. Stephen Winter. A conformity to a certain macho white man masculinity became not only accepted norm, but almost rigorously enforced. And if you're a little bit more feminine or a little bit more offbeat, you would be shunned in gay clubs and, and bars at the time. And if you were not a white person, you would also be shunned. And somehow, Sylvester's androgynous drag queen flamboyance <laughs> became another point of cultural pride that everybody could agree upon. They don't want drag queens in the club, but they want Sylvester. <laughs> they don't want black lovers, but they want Sylvester. I went to meet Harvey Fuqua, thinking I was going to audition to do studio work as a background singer. Again, Martha Wash. 
He had his office in Oakland and he wanted me to sing something. Harvey Fuqua was the lead singer for Harvey and the Moon Glows. They came out, I think, in the 50s. And I remember some of their songs. I think it was uh, one was the Ten Commandments of Love or something like that. Know how happy we will be if we keep the Ten Commandments of Love. I think of Harvey Fuqua as one of the first self-contained talents in R&B. He was a singer, songwriter, producer, a peer of Smokey Robinson. But I didn't really put two and two together with Harvey and Motown Records. Harvey married Gwen Gordy, the sister of Motown founder Barry Gordy. And Harvey brought Tammy Terrell to the label, put her together with Marvin Gaye, and produced hit records like Ain't No Mountain High Enough. He was right there with Barry back in Detroit, putting together Motown Records. So he had been in the business for decades by the time I came along. Motown had the first artist development department at any record label. Harvey was one of the people who helped invent it. I've always believed that artist development was the secret of Motown's incredible success. Harvey spoke about it in a 1984 radio broadcast about the history of Motown. I asked BG, could I start this department? And he said, of course, because we were working on the Supremes and this was our major push. These girls, we're going to make these girls show business. We had one guy writing what they're going to say. I would do some of the arrangements. I met Harvey about 15 years ago. We were both board members of the R&B Foundation. He was, to me, inscrutable. He wore dark sunglasses indoors. You couldn't see his eyes. In the fall of 1976, Harvey and his business partner and lover Nancy Pitts were starting a label called Honey Records. It was just getting off the ground, and it was a long way from the studied glamour of Motown. Still, Harvey and Nancy were looking for talent, which is what brought singer Martha Wash to their offices in a converted Safeway market in Oakland, across the bay from San Francisco. I did not realize it was in an old Safeway, but okay, that makes sense. I talked with Harvey and I told him about Sylvester and I said, we're doing shows. And I said, you should come and check us out. And he said, okay, you know, I will. A couple of weeks later, Nancy Pitts showed up and I said, oh, okay, glad to see you. You know, you can come see our show and, and all of that. It didn't take more than a couple minutes hearing Sylvester and the two tons for Nancy to realize what she'd stumbled into. She rushed to a payphone to call Harvey. She told him that Sylvester was the artist they needed. Harvey was still out of town, but Nancy couldn't wait. She invited Sylvester to visit her at the Honey Records office. He was short on cash, so he took a train and then a bus, but still showed up looking fabulous. Nancy promised to try to get Harvey to the Elephant Walk to see them. On his way back to the city, Sylvester took off his heels and walked all the way to the train station. Once again, success seemed so close. Fuck it, he thought to himself. If it's gonna come, it'll come. A couple of weeks later, Harvey finally made it to the Elephant Walk and was promptly blown away. He later said, What I saw on stage were two big women, looked like they must have weighed a ton each, great gospel singing, gorgeous hunks of women. And I saw an all-white backing group, and they were dynamite. I said, hey, they got rhythm too. And I saw Sylvester, an extravaganza of immense talent. And the people were going crazy. I'm standing there in a suit and everything, and I'm getting destroyed. I said, wow, that's it. He told Nancy, whatever we're doing, close it down as soon as possible. I want to work specifically on this man here, Stephen Winter. At 
this time in American history, rock and roll is only about 20 years old. And it has changed the world. And there are a set group who helped make that thing happen. And Harvey Fuqua was right up there at the top. And he was glamorous. Harvey was a very glamorous man. Diana Ross was one of his people. Smokey Robinson is one of his people. He is of the gods and goddesses of Sylvester's world. And so for that person to come to Sylvester and say, I see you in the same breath that I see these other people, it's what Sylvester would have considered magic, the blessing of Harvey Fuqua. Years later, after they had huge hits together, Harvey would say, there's only two people in this business that I've worked with who have really, really got it. Marvin Gaye and Sylvester. Harvey Fuqua and Nancy Pitt's Honey Records was part of a larger Bay Area label called Fantasy Records. Fantasy had released jazz legends like Ella Fitzgerald, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, plus best-selling rock artists like Creedence Clearwater Revival. Under their new deal, Fuqua would produce Sylvester and Nancy would handle the business side. So in February 1977, Sylvester, Martha, and Isora and the band walk through the glamorous headquarters of Fantasy Records in Berkeley to start work on an album. Gold records line the walls. I've always seen Harvey as an underrated record producer. His studio arrangements sound meticulous, and like so many Motown producers, he had incredible attention to detail. But mostly he was a feel producer. He liked to let the tape roll while Sylvester and the band would jam and find the groove. But Harvey also had a strategy. He thought that Sylvester could climb on board the massively popular, incredibly lucrative musical craze of the moment, disco. At the time, I wasn't into dance music or into disco at all. Sylvester was partly drawn to Harvey because of the connection to Marvin Gaye. That's the sound Sylvester had in mind for the record, not disco necessarily. But all that creative tension in the studio faded when they recorded a song by Motown duo Ashford and Simpson called Over and Over. Matter of fact, how I liked Over and Over is that I watched Soul Train once and saw Ashford and Simpson on and they sang that song, they wrote it. And I liked the song and I said, oh, let's add this in the show. They'd been playing it live to the sweaty crowds at the Elephant Walk, and it was a huge favorite. A lot of people haven't even heard Ashford and Simpson's original version. It's a cool, mid-tempo groove with swirling strings, and it comes in at a toe-tapping bounce of about 118 beats per minute. Sylvester's version amps up all the stakes. The band comes in at 128 beats per minute, adrenaline hot. The horn section is tight and in the pocket, and the groove is tough and tight as a glove. Everything feels like a lead-up to that monster hook. I hear a cutting commentary in Sylvester's version of Over and Over, when he sings, Find Yourself a Friend. With those lyrics coming out of Sylvester's mouth, it seems like a song about how gay men have to form real friendships and create social bonds with each other in order to move beyond the transactional sex and the one-night stands that were oh so common in the 70s and 80s era of gay liberation struggles. 
It's a commentary that still holds value today in an era defined by dating and hookup apps like Tinder and Grindr. The album is simply called Sylvester. But almost immediately, there were issues. Terry Hinty was the publicist at Fantasy Records at the time. The original cover had Sylvester in drag. He had no problem putting on a dress or a caftan or just something that might make some people uncomfortable. And the record stores would not display it in their windows. So the cover had to be redone. The whole package had to be, you know, repressed. The new cover had Sylvester with short hair and dressed, well, not in drag. Harvey Fuqua had found a way to work with Sylvester in the studio, easing him into a more commercial sound. But Nancy Pitts was trying to find a way to market an openly gay artist. And for Martha Wash, at least, Nancy did not have Harvey's touch. Harvey was cool. Harvey was cool. He was very, very laid back. Nancy was... How can I say? We kind of clashed. She was trying to get him to be more of a mainstream artist. She tried to get Sylvester out of the caftan ensembles and things, but Sylvester wasn't really having it. You know, he was saying, look, accept me for who I am. If I'm in a caftan, love me anyhow. If not, hey, that's your problem. And if you tell me I have to do something, I'm more apt to tell you, no, I don't. And, you know, but if you say, if I were you, or let's try this, then we can sit down and, and even though reluctantly I might do it, but I do it. And we come to some medium in, in the middle. But the more the label tried to butch him up, the more he resisted, putting out imagery that was even more over the top. Fantasy Records and Nancy reacted by trying to keep Sylvester invisible in the hopes that the record would get some traction on the charts. Before long, the album was being promoted with no photographs at all. And you know, if you Google photos of Sylvester from this period, you'll come up with almost nothing. I can imagine how Sylvester must have felt, being forced to disappear from the cover of his album, like he was being erased. Queer people of color are used to being treated as disposable, less than, invisible. You just don't expect to have it happen on the cover of your own album. In spite of these skirmishes and the headwinds they faced trying to market Sylvester, over and over became a hit of sorts. It didn't make the pop charts in the US, but it was a big hit in Mexico and Europe, and it became a cult hit in underground discos. Today, it's still played at queer dance clubs and sampled by DJs. But back to 1977. Harvey and Nancy quickly threw together a tour to take advantage of the momentum. In Mexico City, they played a large downtown theater. Before big companies like Live Nation or Ticketmaster, artists and their managers relied on local promoters to get the word out for concerts. And that first night, a thousand excited fans filled the room, going wild for their music. But the next night, the place was basically empty. Here's keyboardist Dan Reich. We found out that what had happened was that they'd given away like, you know, 900 free tickets or something the night before. And that's why they got all the people there the first night. The show had just been a total bomb, box office-wise. And then we found out that the local promoter in Mexico City had skipped town with the money that he had made without paying the venue. And the venue was threatening to confiscate our equipment. They didn't get paid. Dan Reich and the guys were furious. 
They confronted Harvey and Nancy and demanded an explanation. They were explaining to us that, well, don't blame me. This promoter was crooked. And I'm like, well, you guys hired this guy. And I got the musicians together and I drafted up this thing that said, you guys agreed to pay us our tour expenses when we get back to the United States. And we wanted Sylvester and Harvey and Nancy to all sign this agreement. We staked them out in our hotel suite, waiting for them to come out and sign the thing. And it went on for hours and hours and hours. And finally they said, this is ridiculous. You guys are really being assholes about this, blah, blah, blah. But they did sign the agreement. Harvey and Nancy knew who their star was and they knew what he needed. Everything and everybody else was an afterthought. I mean, Sylvester liked to be indulged. You know, he was sort of a prima donna. He liked to be indulged, and they would indulge him. And as time went on, he got indulged more and more, and they kind of gave us a shorter and shorter shrift, it seemed like. As the tour came to an end, things had gotten tense. On the way back to San Francisco, there was a little issue with travel plans, one that Dan Reich always believed felt like payback. As we were flying out of the L.A. airport, we had to check our bags and then get to a plane. And uh, so I said, well, you guys go ahead and get on a plane. I'm going to make sure the equipment all gets loaded. They said, "Okay, great, Dan. Thanks for doing that. And when they all got to the plane, Nancy said, we're all here. Let's take off. And they left me at the airport. All this would be petty stuff if the record was a mainstream smash. But it wasn't. Over and Over still wasn't the hit they'd hoped, except with its core gay fans. And for fantasy publicist Terry Hinty, the issues with Sylvester's image were not going to make it easy. At that time, if you got music on certain radio stations, that's what made it a hit. Many black radio programmers at R&B Radio were adamant about not playing his music because of his image. They just didn't want to go there. Leslie Stovall was a young DJ at KRE an FM station in Berkeley that played blues, R&B, and jazz. She'd just gotten her first on-air gig and was standing by herself at a local award ceremony when Sylvester came up to her. So I'm just standing there, and then Sil comes over to me and says, Hello, who are you? Because I was being shy, you know. He said, You are a lady of quality. I said, Oh, thank you. And I introduced myself. He said, Oh, I love you. He listened to me all the time. I've just gotten on the air. KRE liked to support local artists, and Leslie would play Sylvester's records on her show. They got to be close friends. I don't know, we just loved each other, and he respected my ear, so he respected my music sense, and I've loved his music. Leslie knew the radio business, and she knew the battle he faced. Sylvester was like all great people ahead of his time, you know, and with black radio, for whatever reason, you know, he's just macho. They weren't ready to give this gay man his props. They didn't want to deal with it. But could an openly gay artist go mainstream? It had never been done before. And not just openly gay, but black and openly gay. But that didn't mean it couldn't be done or shouldn't be done. Sylvester didn't shrink himself when confronted with stigmas. He was mighty real and mighty authentic enough to crash through that glass ceiling and give it a try. Coming up next time, on Sound Barrier. I really don't like disco music at all, but maybe we should do a disco record and throw our record in the pot too. Sylvester was thrown into that mainstream thing like that, overnight. The next thing I knew, I'm on the Concord on my way to Paris. But a trip to the top comes with baggage. It was turning into a star trip of limousines and suites and screaming people. That's next time on Sound Barrier. 
Sound Barrier is a Spotify original podcast from Best Case Studios. It was hosted by me, Jason King, and written by me, Adam Pincus, Brent Katz, and Stephen Winter. Brent Katz is senior producer, and Karkeet is our producer. Associate producers are Ashley Warren and Ali Gallo. Josh Gamson is consulting producer. Co-producers are Louis Spiegler, Christian D. Bruin, and Tim Smith. This episode was edited by Vanessa Lowe, with assistance from James Hansen, and mixed and mastered by Dean White. Paul Dallas is our archival producer, with help from Katie Heiserman. Music is by Gautam Schrickeson, Sam Retzer, and Roger Neal, with additional music from Brent Katz, Blue Dot Sessions, and Five Alarm. Music supervision by Joel C. High and Sammy Posner, with help from Ricky Holman. Executive producers are me, Jason King, Adam Pincus for Best Case Studios, and Stephen Ames Brown for The Sylvester Estate. Corinne Gilliard is executive producer for Spotify. Special thanks to Harry Weinger, Shirley Ramos, Brian Smith, Linda Cohen, Galen Mullins, Kevin Pham, Baron Farmer, Gina Delvac, and Ilana Myers. Find and follow Sound Barrier only on Spotify.